Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Jeremy Black. We're talking to Jeremy today about his new book, England in the Age of Austin, just published by Indiana University Press 2021. Jeremy, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to have you, as always. Before we talk about the book, could you tell us something about yourself, perhaps, and how you came to be interested in Austin as a subject? Well, I haven't changed much since you last interviewed <laughs> me last week. So, and I do hope listeners take the trouble to listen to previous ones. So I'm a retired professor of history, and I live, as your accent will give me away, in England, and I'm English. And the others can damn well look up, listen up to past things for the rest of it. Jim uh, <laughs> I'm an 18th centurist. Jane Austen is one of the principal writers towards the close of the period. And having done England in the age of Shakespeare, um, I was trying to think of a sequel that would work both intellectually for me, but also hopefully be of interest to the publisher. Um, and in fact, I wrote this some considerable time ago, um, soon after I did the Shakespeare. Uh, I'm afraid to say and it's always useful for people to think about this because all too often historians and literary scholars just look at the year of publication, which is not much help because books often are published very or written very differently. So this was published a while ago. The publisher sat on it for no reason that I can see. I got quite cross. Uh, they weren't particularly interested. Um, and in fact, in the meantime, they published a book by me on the history of tanks, which had actually been written subsequently. And as a result of this, what I thought would be a good series with Indiana, in which one took a number of authors, has turned out to only be a two book series, Shakespeare and Austin, because the others, which are coming out shortly, which have all been written in the meantime, to wit on Dickens, on Agatha Christie and on uh, Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories will all appear with other publishers. And again, you wouldn't gauge that if you just looked at the years of publication. And as I said, that may not be what people hoping to listen to Austin first should think about, but actually you should always think about the genesis of a book. And in a way, not that I would compare myself to Jane Austen, I certainly don't have her skills or her subtlety at dealing with individuals, but as a, in a way it's true for Jane Austen as well, because as you know, the years of the publication of her books were not by any means uh, necessarily the years in which they were written. Now, Jeremy, most people nowadays, I suppose it's true to say, who engage with Austen do so through film versions rather than initially through the novels themselves. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? I think that's an excellent question. And I think on the whole, it creates a lot of problems. And interestingly enough, last night, I was looking at a programme which ITV broadcast 
um, which was on uh, Agatha Christie and Hercule Poirot, in which it was quite clear to my mind and that of my wife that some of the people they interviewed had not read Agatha Christie at all and were basing their comments on her um, uh, on the film or television versions they had seen, in which, of course, she was in no way responsible and in which there is very major divergence from her values and her methods. I think the same thing can be said of Jane Austen. So that Jane Austen is a, for example, um, a very devout figure, uh, somebody best understood in terms of the Anglican Toryism of late 18th century England. And I think it's fair to say that those values um, do do not uh, come ac come across in film versions, which tend instead uh, to be uh, presenting characters as if they were either the sort of person that you might wish to meet today if you were the director, or be today if you were the director, or a kind of Wuthering Heights view of a kind of early 19th century heroine. So we have the age-old problem, what are we looking at? Are we looking at Jane Austen, or are we looking at later iterations of Jane Austen? And you can see that in a way, uh, in particular, where she's often writing about the here and now, and writing in a way about... Um, as it were, interacting with other works. Now, the most famous example of that, and indeed my favourite Jane Austen novel, is Northanger Abbey. And the reason it's my favourite novel is it's because it's the wittiest. And as you know, um, in a way, it's a um, riff on Anna Radcliffe's neo-Gothic novels. Um, and it's brilliantly so. But if you haven't read those, and of course it's fair to say contemporaries would have understood exactly what it was about. But if you haven't read those, it's much harder to follow it. Um, so I think, and to follow in particular the anxieties about being put in a, um, in a strange house and how to somebody who's suggestible as a result of reading a certain type of fiction, they then... Um, a sort of what you would like later call in the 20th century perils of Pauline kind of fiction, you, they then um, play through a set of responses. Incidentally, I use that perils of Pauline uh, deliberately as a comparison because Agatha Christie plays that trick in one of her non-Poirot novels in the late 20s. And again, you have to be aware of the fiction she's making fun of in order to understand Agatha Christie, who often was extremely funny. But unfortunately, that again doesn't seem to be of interest to modern directors. Now, I suppose one of the, the, the aspects of the comic form that Austen's novels often take is the happy resolution, typically in the form of marriage. I was really struck, Jeremy, by some of your discussions in the book about the fluidity of what we might call social class in the period. How do Austen's marriage plots help us understand that, that kind of fluidity? Well, that's a very good question again. I mean, in a way, and again, we go back to a, a very famous early novel, uh, maybe the most iconic novel for people of that period, which was Pamela by Samuel Richardson, of which, in which, of course, the serving maid preserves her virtue and gets her man. Now, that is presented as a serious 
novel. I mean, obviously, as you may know, it was mocked in Shamala and all the rest of it, but it's presented as a serious novel. And what it is about, in a sense, is that the notion of politeness ought to be one that is not um, defined by uh, a kind of social caste system. So if you want the contrast, you think about the contrast among uh, un unfortunately, from what we can understand in modern India with the caste system, where it appears to be, you know, very widespread for males of what are re regarded as better castes uh, to abuse, often rape women who have lower castes. Um, now, you know, India is in that respect a very primitive society with its caste system. I think it's fair to say that if you're looking at um, 18th century England, and particularly the cult of politeness. The cult of politeness both argues that men, irrespective of their social behaviour, ought to be able to comport themselves to others as gentlemen. And of course, there are institutions such as the clubs, the Freemasonry, the learned societies that seek to erode the notions of uh, social differentiation. And there is also this idea in courtship. Now, as you correctly say, and as Jane Austen's novels very much bring out, this cuts across the idea of marriage as essentially a commercial transition or transaction in which the preservation of rank and the furtherance of profit for the family or the individual are foremost. And, of course, Austin is very much coming down against that view, and that is in accordance not just with the cult of politeness and the conventions of novels, but it's also in accordance with, as I mentioned already, her very strong Anglican um, notion of society. And I don't think you can understand uh, um, Austin, just as I don't think you can understand Agatha Christie, unless you realise that they are both moralists. And one of the problems with the film or television versions is that they seek to erode or ignore this moralisation um, precisely by throwing attention to the kind of material comforts of life, whether it's houses, furniture, in the case of Christie, films, uh, Art Deco, um, without actually considering that both those novelists were more concerned with what they saw of as true gentility, which, for example, is what Emma has to learn. And there is also linked to that a degree of politics. Now, you will not be surprised to hear that in the um, uh, in the television programme about Poirot uh, yesterday, they did not mention uh, that Agatha Christie has Hastings say Poirot is certainly not a socialist, and indeed. Poirot is very much, uh, as was Agatha Christie, in accordance with a uh, conservative Anglicanism. The same thing, in my view, is true of Jane Austen. And I know that there are literary critics who don't like that and who've tried to argue that there is active subversion um, in both the content and the textual method of of Austin, but I actually am one of these old-fashioned people that believe you should focus on what the text says. And the text is very much about values and virtues of continuity, as well as, as I discuss in my book, a sense of Englishness, um, an Englishness which is in part 
uh, encoded in the uh, in the landscape and in part encoded um, in a, a diffuse uh, pattern of um, uh, appropriate behavior. And also, as you will know, and as I discuss in my book, um, I also talk about Austin's uh, short history of England and of the, um, the conservative values she enunciates in that. I suppose, Jeremy, in terms of talking about genre, the, both the detective... The detective fiction form, with its drive towards closure, and the comic form that most, not necessarily all of Austin's novels take, they, they reflect a kind of satisfaction with order and balance, don't they? And I suppose that appeals to uh, a writer of a conservative turn of mind. Uh, one of the things you say well, in the can book... I just that, say, can yeah. I just say, uh, Crawford, I'm not going to disagree with you there, but I don't think that captures the moral dimension. Hmm. There is a moral dimension which we should all be aware of in which the idea that the good do not see the bad, as it were, get away with it, is part of not just some sense of political convenience, not, as some left-wing thinker might argue, a form of sort of class injustice, but actually is a profound understanding of... uh, of morality. I mean, when Poirot is made to say, given lines to say, that he doesn't like murder, when Agatha Christie says that evil walks on the world, what they are talking about, Poirot says there is always evil under the sun, what they are talking about is a notion of the real presence of evil, which is something that you get both in Christie and in Austin. They are Anglican writers. Now, unfortunately, most literary critics do not understand or wish to understand religious values, and therefore they tend to provide, in some Marxist account, they try and present them as if they're class justice or people who are rigidly conservative, whatever that means, um, etc., etc. What I would prefer to argue is that these are successful novelists precisely because they offer values that are of universal um, veracity, appeal and interest, but also because they integrate them into their characterization and their plots and the settings without a heavy-handedness, which I think is very, very important. So, you know, clearly um, neither Austin nor... um, uh, Christie is trying to do a Wollstonecraft or write in the kind of heavy-handed fashion of a George Orwell. That does not mean that they are worse novelists. In fact, it means they are better novelists because they are more skillful at getting you to understand a set of values in which uh, treating others unfairly and harshly in, the, uh, in Austin or killing them, as in, uh, as in uh, Christie, are unworthy and actually something that one should wish not to see happen. So they are, in a sense, moral tales about for both the author and their readers, and they work precisely because the morality isn't too strongly placed and poised. Uh, now, actually, I think, in my view, um, Austin is a, has an easier task or rather had an easier task um, because uh, obviously there were people, as you know, in the uh, England of the period who were radicals, but there was a fundamental conservatism 
um, in and religiosity in English culture of the period, the kind of values that led people to rally round George III in the 1784 general election that led to the enormous groundswell of uh, volunteer and militia uh, um, sentiment and action during the French Revolution in Napoleonic Wars, which, of course, Austin depicts. And with reason, her brothers served in the military um, and, you know, were brave men, two of them. Um, so the uh, that is an element which is much harder for Agatha Christie, because in Agatha Christie's age, you get the what I think is the active subversion, sapping, whatever terms you want to use, by both modernists in literary uh, circles and by the left. And therefore, um, and I would argue that many of today's um, uh, directors, I thought the Sarah Phelps uh, 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 adaptations of Agatha Christie were a travesty, but they're a travesty that clearly works for some people because they want to reject uh, the whole of the values represented by Christie. In the case of Austin, if you present it as essentially what to use the modern term, I'm told, is chick lit, which I understand you're a great expert on, Crawford. Um, <laughs> um, but I told you publish your works on it under a pseudonym. So you <laughs> I can interview you on this, Crawford. Don't be embarrassed. But if they present it as ch either as chick lit in writing terms or chick lit in film terms, that is also to demean and degrade not just Austin, who's long dead and what does she care, but also more particularly the readers. Well, viewers. we might come back to some of those issues later on, Jeremy. There's a, there's a huge number of themes in that response that are worth um, perhaps teasing out at, at, at greater length. But one of the things you say in the book is that... Think, I mean, you're an intellectual like me. Do you not think that actually one of the important uh, aspects of being an intellectual is to be a moralist? I mean, that to write or to think about, um, we're both historians, you're more of a historian of ideas than me, I'm not as good as you at, at, at that as you, but that in a way there is an element of morality there, and this element is much harder than, as you know, I wrote a book on 18th century history, but it's much harder than for the historians of the 18th century, because they were operating in a society that had a clearer moral compass and clearer understanding of moral purpose, whereas that is much more difficult today, and people treat you as if you're some kind of social or intellectual pariah. Um, and, you know, much I care what other people think of me. But I think that that is a problem if one wishes to treat seriously. And I think Jane Austen's brilliant. She's witty. She's exciting. Her stories are stimulating. And also they're not too long. Um, but I think all of those are the case. But she is also not but and she is also a moralist of great note and skill. Mm. And in, in some ways, it's that it's the moral sensibility that she offers that rehabilitates the novel as a form in this period, isn't it? And you tell us in the book about some of her rather celebrity supporters um, in, in this way. How, how does all of that work out? Well, I think it actually works. Again, I mean, I think that Jane Austen herself is a rather pleasing tale in a way of the openness of the uh, English stroke British. I mean, they called themselves English, but they often meant British. 
um, system of that period, that people who were not uh, in the first rank could nevertheless rise to the top in fame um, and sometimes fortune. Um, so if you're thinking about writers, obviously, um, Jane Austen is an example. I give some, uh, some other novelists in my book as an example. But if I was thinking more about, for uh, instance, Horatio Nelson, the saviour of the nation, a man uh, like, in fact, Jane Austen from a Anglican background, um, and uh, not, a, not a metropolitan figure. And I think, in a way, the openness of the conservative system, because it was a conservative system, but the openness of the conservative system of that period to men and women of talent is tremendously important. And Jane Austen, in part, is writing about that. Now, she obviously sets a lot of that in terms of the social issues of, of um of uh, behaviour and more specifically courtship and marriage. But that is partly what she is writing about. And in a way, what she is taking aim at is cast notions, whether they are presented in a very hostile fashion, um, um, you know, Lady de Burr, General Tilney, uh, or whether they're presented in a more... Uh, benign fashion, um, Colonel Fitzwilliam, for example, she's actually saying this isn't good enough. And because these are happy ending stories, her characters come through. But as with other essentially comic marriage ending or other ending stories, you can think of Henry Fielding's Tom Jones in that category. There is always the sense there, what else might happen? So there is always this kind of journey, either the physical journey, and obviously Tom Jones is a physical journey, or the personal journey, as with Emma, because Emma singularly doesn't travel very much. Um, the, there is, oh, but, you know, others, others of the characters do go away uh, from their appearance, um, there is the, um, and including, I mean, Elizabeth Bennet goes travelling, um, after all. Um, there is the, this sense of the journey as posing the issues and problems. So you as a, um, as a sort of Protestant thinker will know that we're think, that I'm thinking here, uh, in terms of, you know, the, the influence, which is very strong, including in Anglican circles of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. That that notion, I mean, I know it was originally a nonconformist track, but that's a very, and of course it's reprinted a lot in the late 18th century. And the journey is a moral as well as an emotional um, factor in the Austin stories. And again, I think that's underplayed in the way these are treated. Now, I mean, look, I, this makes my book sound incredibly heavy. I hope you'll agree. It's actually 
I would like to think, wide-ranging, witty and interesting, um, but I don't want to deny the weight of seriousness that Austen deserves. And as you will know, in my big biography of George III, I similarly, who was the king uh, during her entire life, I similarly had a large chapter on faith in the churches, because I think that's important as well for understanding George III, and incidentally, for understanding such issues which vex us today is the abolition of the slave trade. Hmm. Well, one of the things we, you mentioned earlier on, Jeremy, and it, it plays an important role in the book, is Austen's early work on the history of England. And of course, in that work, she gives voice to um, opinions that are very much in favour of King Charles I, describes Oliver Cromwell as, as, as a monster, uh, and, and indicates a real commitment to the kind of ecclesiastical continuity that that royalist, perhaps even non-during, um, sensibility might might gesture towards. Do you think that her views change over time from that work, perhaps, into some of the later fiction? Well, again, that's a fascinating question. And as you know, there is a strand in Jane Austen's scholarship that argues that. So, uh, I mean, I think it's fair to say that Jane Austen is not a character that is writing a daily diary to tell you what she thinks about politics. As you know, her correspondence is, much of it was destroyed, of course, her correspondence is relatively slight, or surviving correspondence is very relatively slight. Um, definitely the non-during tradition, which, as you know, and as I discuss in my book, uh, comes in part through her Oxford relatives, and as you know, there is it's a family with a lot of clergy, clergy in it, in its various branches. So it is part of what happens to the non-during tradition. Um, are you saying to me, you seem to be saying to me, did this change later? Well, in terms of politics, of course, the French Revolution, not so much because it cut off the king's head, though that was an issue in France, but actually more particularly because it abolished Christianity, I mean, the, the French Revolution, and therefore its English supporters, had to be seen in that light. These are not people that are just sort of radical, sort of proto-members of, you know, the Labour Party, as, as they were sometimes depicted by rather stupid historians over the last half century. These are actually people who wanted to uh, introduce into Britain French systems, which included what was by any standards a fundamental radicalization. Now, if you read Austin, of course, as you know, um, and again, because he's a funny character and again, because the television camera has loved it, um, you know, the ridiculous Mr. Collins in Pride and Prejudice is usually taken to define Jane Austen's view of the church. But as you will know, uh, although I can think of, and I do discuss in my book, uh, at least one other cleric who doesn't act as he should do, on the whole, the clergy are extremely positive figures in it, just as the military are, on the whole. Colonel Brandon, for example, very much so. And the clergy are, in a way, the heroes. You know, that's, that's the, repeatedly they are the heroes in it. And I actually think that that is quite clearly a political statement, as well as whatever, I mean, I don't think you should separate politics from morality and ideology and religion. They are all part of the same. That is part of a, of a religious morality. Um, so having clerics as, um, 
positive characters is making a political statement about those who wish to get rid of the clergy. And remember, this is not just an issue in the 1790s. It was sending a pretty strong uh, measure of um, anti-clericalism when Napoleon had the Pope seized Um, taken away from Rome and thrown into a form of house arrest for several years. That was not a subtle step. Now, the fact that most uh, British commentators today don't seem to realise how how much that sent a line through people telling them French regime, still anti-clerical, still anti-religious, the concordat with Rome that Napoleon has signed isn't worth the paper it's written on. That was also making a statement about radicals in Britain. Well, Jeremy, given all that you've said about Austen, her world, the values that she has, are you surprised by her current popularity? Well, again, that's a fascinating question, Crawford. You must let me ask interview you on this chicklet thing. I'll ask Marshall Poe, who runs this program. You know, you mustn't be so modest. I can then get the chance to ask you some of the... Try and see if I'm as good as you. Uh, that's a good one. Um, am I surprised? Um, well, uh, I think it's fair to say that, as you know, I have a chapter in there on what on Austin after Austin, as it were, um, and how her reputation changed. And as you know, there was a considerable period when I think it's fair to say she wasn't in the forefront when the British were looking at novelists. Um, So I think, yes, I would say that I am surprised. I would say that I am surprised. I mean, it's been true of much of my lifetime, so I'm not surprised anymore. But um, I think there are other novels which, in a way, work better for modern times. Uh, You know, to understand Jane Austen, you have to understand notions of not just of politeness and true charity and kindness between human beings, which are obviously important, But you also have to understand notions of how the difficulties people have in navigating social environments, which were much more constricted and limited than those of the present day Um, in in Britain. You have to understand um, the role of a moral code in society. I mean, it's no accident um, that uh, uh, the characters meet each other at church or, or meet each other after church or on the way to church or this sort of thing. Church is central to the sociability of a society in which within a, you know, most, particularly women, didn't travel all that much. But even many men only might leave their immediate, you know, bit of their county uh, maybe two or three times a year at that um, so that again is an experience that we really uh, don't have today when there's only so many people you can socialize with and therefore you have to be very uh, aware of that um, so yes um, uh, maybe what we've done is taken apart, or by which, not we, I'm not holding you and I responsible for this, <laughs> maybe what has happened is that a misleading image of the past has been grafted onto a self-satisfied view of the present, um, or and a very uh, misleading view of the present, um, because 
Jane Austen's world was, as she knew, not always that of happy endings. She doesn't have a happy ending, of course. Uh, as I discuss in my book, various of her relatives, particularly female relatives, do not have happy endings. Uh, one of them goes to India, in effect, uh, as the only way to get married, uh, you know, for, and, you know, to establish themselves. Uh, married to obviously a Brit there. Um, so, I think that the novels themselves are in part a wish fulfillment, a prospectus, a moral understanding of what society should be. And that is then taken today as if that was what it was. And that I'm not sure is very helpful. Mm. But as novels, they're great. And if you understand them as novels, they are sprightly, exciting. They're novels in which dialogue plays a role. They're not novels in which character is depicted very successfully. Um, there are what you would call, with reference to Dickens, grotesques in them, but the grotesques aren't tediously reiterated, as Dickens is apt to do, uh, nor is there the sort of grand horror of, uh, uh, that you have in Dickens or the somewhat often implausible reveals. Um, so that uh, I actually find... Uh, as I said, I've got a book coming out on Dickens. I actually find uh, Austin a crisper, cleaner read. I like the fact that it has a female voice. I think if you compare it with other great female novelists in Britain, and there are, I've already mentioned one in Agatha Christie, there have been a lot of great uh, uh, female uh, novelists. I think Austin is better than, uh, to my mind, the next significant one that comes along, which is Mrs. Trollope. Um, I think her characters don't live in the slightly um, over-the-top um, uh, fashion that some of the Bronte characters live in. Um, and I think that you can read Austin and reread it knowing what is going to happen and still find an enormous amount of value in it. And that is important because if a novel is something, simply something that you read for the story and that you're not in a way for the plot, then it is limited. I mean, it was hilarious. Yesterday, um, they didn't tell you uh, the crux about the murder of Roger Ackroyd, why it is so successful as a plot. Well, the fact of the matter is, once you know that, that is still, who did it, in other words, it is still worth reading the novel. That is what a good novel is about. It shouldn't be just a story, though the story itself should be valuable. And Austin gets that balance. And I've tried in my book to communicate the fascination of such a skillful writer and the way in which, I mean, what I've done with the book, it's the same with the Shakespeare book. I've tried to use my knowledge as a historian to throw light on the, on the novelist and her novels, and also to use her novels and her life to throw light on England in the period. And I think that gives a good historian, and I would like to hope that I am a good historian, a particular edge, because many literary critics might well 
uh, have theoretical insights that I am too stupid to understand, but they generally do not really f understand or appreciate the nature of the society in which they are op of which they are discussing, uh, and therefore the parameters within which the readers thought things. And actually, on that last point, and I did the same thing with the Shakespeare, Austin's readers. Same with Shakespeare's uh, audiences were not just people of the their age, they were also those of a generation before. So you need to think not just what happens in Austin's lifetime, but what has happened roughly in the quarter century beforehand and how that, that would have affected experiences and attitudes. And again, I feel, you know, when people talk about life and times, they're often very poor at getting in uh, the, the vibrancy, the vitality of the backstory in that fashion. Mm. Well, the book does that really well, Jeremy, England and the Age of Austin, opening up not just the novels themselves, but also the complicated, interconnected worlds um, of which they're a part. So it's been great talking to you about this, England and the Age of Austin, just published by Indiana University Press. You mentioned now earlier on... Now to ask me what I'm doing next. <laughs> I am. You took the words out of my mouth. You mentioned earlier on there's a sequence of other, novel, uh, other books in this series, Dickens being one, Sherlock Holmes being another... So when, yeah, and, 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 and Hercule Poirot. Well, um, all three of them are due out within the next eight months. Fantastic. They're all, written, they're all written and they're all due out and they've all been accepted and they're all due out within the next eight months. And, you know, I hope that people will find them interesting. I mean, what's fascinating for me, and again, we, we you know, we did at the very beginning, I tried to mention, because you, we've got intelligent author uh, listeners, but they often, you, people often don't understand that authors are in part constrained by the parameters within which the publishers necessarily have to act. So it's quite interesting. I was then asked, you know, we're talking about a week ago, um, or two weeks ago, I think now, no, a week ago, what I would like to do next if I had another author. And I said, well, actually, I'd rather like Henry Fielding. I know a lot about the period. Fielding is very interesting, not just as the writer of, of books, which tends to be what people know him mostly for, but also as an author of a number of rather good plays and also as one of the leading journalists of the period. And you could hear the pause on the, on the phone as, as the person said, finally said to me, I don't think that would sell, which, you know, is fair enough, because um, if books don't sell, pub, why should publishers risk their, their capital on them? You know, it is expensive to produce a book. Um, so I, I do think, and obviously, if you come right up to the present day, that there are all sorts of issues uh, to deal with uh, permission rights and all the rest of it. Um, so I, this may be the the last, this sequence, the last, in which case, well, if you add my James Bond one, which has just come out in a new a new edition, of course, um, uh, but it may be the, the last, uh, but in which case I've had enormous fun of doing it. Um, and I hope to, you know, one might drop down dead of a heart attack, but I, I was rather um, shocked is the wrong word, but I noticed one of the obituaries in the Times today was somebody not much older than me. Um, but if one is able to keep going, um, I would like to, you know, to write other on other topics, though um, I'm always aware one has to be constrained by what is allowed. I think the next book out 
is well, there's two of them due out within the next five weeks. Um, one is a short history of France with Thames and Hudson. Um, another one is um, a book on the uh, strategy and foreign policy of Britain between 1758 and 1791 called To Lose an Empire. And that's to do with the British loss of the, um, the North American world, you know, what becomes the United States. Um, so those are very different books, but they were both fascinating to write. And I hope I've communicated some of the interest insights uh, that I've gained through the work. Mm. Well, we've been talking today about England and the Age of Austin, just published by Indiana University Press. Read it a couple of weeks ago. Vivacious, fun, insightful, um, a really excellent book. And Jeremy, we're so grateful for your time coming to talk to us about it today. Thanks for your time and take care. Thank you. And let's hear you on Chicklet. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks for everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. Thank you.